What are the reasons we disagree? Is it possible for two conflicting positions to be equally correct? What behaviors on the part of participants can facilitate a solution? How can we disagree in ways that help us to achieve a better understanding of the world? Originally offered as a course under Ateneo de Manila University's philosophy department entitled Heated Disagreement, Dr. Jacqueline A. Cleofas of Ateneo de Manila University, Philippines, and Professor Richard Walker of the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, Lausanne, Switzerland, discuss persistent and seemingly intractable disagreement, the motivations driving such disagreements, the options open to participants, and the way such disagreements may or may not be resolved. Pocket Lectures is a part of the Arte Podcasts Network produced and recorded in Arte. This episode is brought to you by Garden Pavilion at the Cabanas, a premium event venue in Malolos, Bulacan. So the theme of this set of lectures is heated disagreement. And what we want to do today is try and condense the lectures we've been given at Ateneo into about 45 minutes. Now, why are we interested in disagreement? Well, we think that disagreement has a huge impact on people's lives. Jackie and I both know uh, students and faculty who've been involved in deep and very unpleasant disagreements. And sometimes it's extremely hard to resolve these disagreements. Now, we're often told, ah, but it's okay. All you have to do is sit down, uh, cool down your emotions, uh, bring rational arguments, and then the problem is going to be resolved. That's a wonderful philosophical prescription. But we all know from personal experience that this hardly ever works. So what we're trying to do in these lectures is not talk about ideal disagreements where everyone is cool and rational and everyone uses evidence and everyone argues in the canonical ways we teach, but real life disagreements. And in our lectures, we're going to be talking about lots of cases of real-life disagreement. And before we talk about those cases, I want to um, refer to a specific puzzle um, about the involvement of both reason and emotion in disagreement. I think this is a puzzle primarily because the calm, cool discussion is on the side of reason. And there seems to be this idea that if we focus on rational argumentation and presentation of evidence only, that will be ideal because it will get rid of certain things. It will get rid of um, illogical arguments. It will get rid of the tendency to coerce people, to manipulate them, and to run um, rhetorically effective campaigns that don't really um, refer to the facts. Now, the Involvement of emotion seemed to, it's, it's, it's a reasonable thing to rule out, but that doesn't work either because humans function um, in a way that involves emotions and other non-cognitive processes. 
And if we look at specific cases, it looks like emotion does have an important role to play. And I have a specific example about the um, 1988 plebiscite in Chile, um, as uh, represented in the film Note, directed by Pablo Larraín, where the plebiscite was about whether to vote yes or no to the continuation of Pinochet's rule for another eight years. So this is a military dictatorship. It's very bad. It has hurt a lot of people. And they were running an ad campaign that was based on a litany of the sins of this regime. And that was doing very badly. It, it was factual. It was based on reason. It shows that um, they have done bad things. But it was leading people to disengage and not vote no. But once they ran a campaign based on abstract concepts like joy and about voting no um, is about having a brighter future. The positive emotional engagement seems more effective in getting people to vote no, which was the rational choice, but it seems like emotional engagement in one direction was needed to push people um, to vote in the right way. So I think one question that we must ask is, how do we inco incorporate both emotions and reason in disagreements of this kind? How do we combine rational ar argumentation with emotion-infused persuasion when we are involved in exchanges of this sort? So now I think we're ready to discuss specific cases. So um, one specific case I talked about in the lectures was a disagreement about the nature of attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, which is a very common, it used to be a very common diagnosis among children. More recently, it's quite frequently diagnosed among adults as well. Now, there are two sides to this argument. The conventional wisdom among psychiatrists and among doctors is that this is a disease it's caused by something wrong with your brain. Uh, we can correct what is wrong with your brain by giving you drugs. Uh, there's a drug called Ritalin, which is a mild stimulant, which we can give you. And this will produce a good outcome. That is one side of the argument. I would add to that that both patients and doctors are very often strongly invested in this diagnosis. So a patient who is diagnosed will say, I am really sick, I have a real problem, and so on. Now what's the other side? Um, critics have noted uh, that this diagnosis is more than 20 times more common in the United States than it is in Europe. And yet, uh, one wouldn't say that the Americans are generally saner than the Europeans. Um, they point out that no one knows the mechanism behind this disease. Like if you have pneumonia, we know it's due to bacteria. If you have cancer, we know it's due to cells multiplying outside control. We can give you a biological test and we can see if you're sick. There's no such mechanism for ADHD and there is no such test. It is just the clinical experience of the doctor which says whether you're sick or not. And people will also point out 
that pharma companies selling drugs like Ritalin have made a huge effort to uh, sell this idea. And people add that many of the benefits which patients claim to feel are probably due to a placebo effect. And Ritalin does affect the functioning of your brain. So you feel it's doing something which is true, but it's not necessarily beneficial. Now, what this case shows us is that, you know, something which looks like a fact, you have ADHD, the way the fact is, the fact is a construct. Some people construct ADHD as a disease, but it's absolutely possible to construct it as a case of suffering, but which is not due to something in the patient's head, but which is maybe due to something in the outside environment. So if I take the example of kids, it could be due to the fact their school environment is extremely boring and they find it very hard to sit still in their seats. Hence, they get classed as being ill, where in actual fact, they're just intelligent and bored. So that's one case. So one of the things we're saying in these lectures is that things which appear as facts are not necessarily facts. That doesn't mean that the doctor is wrong to class ADHD in that way. It may be a useful classification for some people, but it's not quite as cold, factual, and obvious as is sometimes presented. So, so here we're talking about what strategies we can use in a case of disagreement. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But before we get there, I'd like to go back to this question of truth and constructing our facts, which is a typical sort of philosophical issue. In the case of ADHD, we saw that the idea that this is a disease is a social construct. That doesn't mean it's false. This is different from saying it's false. But it is constructed by society. The same applies to our idea of philosophy equals dead white men. You know, this is a construct of the way philosophy has been taught in Western universities for a very long time. And I think one of the things we, which was important in our lectures was to get away from the idea that all interesting questions are about facts. There are occasionally real disputes about facts. I can say that two and two makes four, and you can say that two and two makes five. And what, within our mathematical framework, one of us is right, and the other one is wrong. But I would argue that there's very few disagreements like this. Like normally, in a factual area, either I know the facts myself, or I recognize somebody who does know the facts, and I will defer to that person. So I don't fight with my airline pilot. If he says we need to land, I really believe him and I, I land. I don't fight with my surgeon. You know, the surgeon says we need to make an incision here. Well, he knows about how I do surgery. I don't know, so I will defer to my surgeon on that. But really interesting disagreements are usually things where I'm, there may be someone who is superior, but it's not recognized. So uh, if I'm arguing about, uh, let's say, let's say um, ADHD, uh, it's not certain 
who is superior. There is some doctors argue one way, some doctors argue another way, some patients argue one way, some patients argue another way. So I'm, bas I'm basically looking at different social constructs where none of these social constructs is absolutely necessarily true. You know, if someone says, uh, this is a disease, well, yes, and the, the real answer is yes and no, depending on the way I define a disease. And there is no one single correct universally accepted definition. So, given that most disagreements work this way, we have the question of strategy, which Jackie was raising. So I can't just appeal to the facts and sort of produce evidence as in court. I have to use other strategies. And in the lectures, I talk about at least three possible strategies you can use. And just like in our previous cases, we have examples of these. And the first strategy I have is changing the way we frame uh, disagreement. And both Jackie and I have, have examples of that. I'll give my example first, but then we'll come to Jackie's. So in Northern Ireland, which is uh, part of Great Britain, there was a civil war between Catholics and Protestants. It was low intensity warfare. Uh, it caused several thousand deaths. There were atrocities on both sides. There were murders of civilians on both sides. There were very strong paramilitary organizations on both sides who were responsible for these murders. And the Catholic and the Protestant communities were deeply divided by, not just by the killings, but also by culture. If you went to a Catholic school, you learnt one version of British history where the British were always responsible for massacres. And incidentally, it was all true. And if you went to a Protestant school, uh, you learnt about how the Catholics were all responsible for spreading superstition and not allowing civil rights in Ireland. And that was all true too. But each, each community focused on the negative side of the opposite community and didn't see anything positive ever. They, it was a very, very conflictual version of history they learned. So they had all these killings. But by the late 1980s and early 1990s, things had begun to change. Ireland was becoming richer. So the actual social tension and the poverty which was driving a lot of this conflict, this was a conflict among poor people, was getting less. People were really tired of the violence and killing. Just about everyone knew somebody who'd been killed and they didn't like it because most people were not militants on either side. Um, and it was becoming clear that the Catholic population was growing and sooner or later there was going to have to be an accommodation. And so various people on both sides started talking uh, secretly. And uh, in the end, they got to actually negotiate. There was a negotiation with the British government, was the negotiation between the Catholics and the Protestants. It ended with a thing called the Good Friday Agreement, which is a peace agreement. 
There's been almost no deaths since then. Peace has been restored. And, um, and uh, Ireland is now a much more prosperous place than before, though not as prosperous as everyone would want. But the interesting thing was, at the, to finally get the peace, all three sides engaged in a bit of calculated deception and ambiguity. So there was a UN mediator, and uh, the British gave him a very extreme proposal for peace, which they knew the Protestants were going to reject. So the UN, and he said, present this as your proposal. And he did this. He was party to this deception. So he presented this thing where basically the British were going to surrender everything to the Catholics. And the Protestants said, no, 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 we can't do that. And then the Catholics said, ah, but we, we don't need all this. We have a much more reasonable proposal to put on the table. They put their reasonable proposal on the table. And the Protestants said, that's great, we'll do it. And so they made peace. And the amazing thing was that after that, after this sort of calculated deception, this wasn't cold and rational. This was playing on people's emotions and deliber deliberately playing tricks. And it was largely for public consumption. I think everyone knew it was a trick. It was meant for the public. Uh, five years later, we had the head of the Protestant terrorist organization talking to the head of the Catholic terrorist organization and saying, my dear friend, Jerry. And the other one was saying, oh, my dear friend, Ian. And the fact is, this wasn't hypocrisy. They had actually made friends. And when the Protestant leader died, the Catholic leader made the eulogy at his funeral. So you can actually resolve these things. I don't think all conflicts and all disagreements can be resolved this way. But by reframing it and changing the way you were talking about it and using the emotional elements, like Jack is saying, you can actually get somewhere. And she's got another example of being clever and getting agreement. So the example that I'm going to talk about is from a, uh, a, an episode in a Netflix series called Street Food. And it is the episode about Taiwan in Jai, Taiwan. And it tells the story of this third generation um, fish head stall owner who got into a big disagreement with her parents about what to do with their business. And the disagreement was very real in the sense that one, one of them believed that they should do one thing and the other believed that they should do another. And it's a very interesting case that illustrates how both emotion and reason are involved. There, are, there is intransigence in both sides. They refuse to give in. And it looks like the only possible solution was to break apart as a family and also not cooperate in, um, in running the family business anymore. So the details are that the stall has been running for um, almost 60 years, and um, the youngest member of the family who just graduated from university came back home at the request of the parents. She didn't want to go back. She wanted to gain more work experience, but she goes back. They're understaffed. They need help. And she starts pouring everything into the family business. But the family business is old-fashioned. And she begins to think of these new ideas about having a cash register instead of 
a copper pot where all the money goes. She has an idea about buying a dishwasher instead of hiring five or six people who are unable to do all the work of washing the dishes anyway. But the parents don't understand why a cash registry system, a credit card machine would be necessary. They don't understand why a huge expense of buying a dishwasher would make sense. Um, and also, they were against things like having an online delivery service. And the parents were not just against this. The parents were actually, especially the mother, in the way that um, Grace Lynn, the youngest member of the family, was telling it, was actually deliberately sabotaging her efforts. So one time, she prepared the online, online side of the business, and somebody was ordering 100 bags of um, fish heads too. And she was preparing this all by herself for, for it to be frozen so that it can be shipped off to the place where the customers were at. And her mother kept on selling the packages that she was <laughs> accumulating so that she was actually unable to accumulate the 100 bags that she needed to freeze. So there's deliberate sabotage apart from resistance to the idea. And all of a sudden, she said, I've had enough of this, and she breaks a clay pot, and her mother starts throwing dishes, and they have a very big argument, and this is, of course, very unbecoming of a good Chinese daughter. This is very bad, so it looks like nothing is going to change, and she thinks this is a disagreement where there's no solution. There's no resolution. There are only two possible options. One is to stay, and completely obey the parents, her parents, and the other one is to leave because she, she believes that um, improving the business would go in one way and they refuse to do that and, and she can do her own thing, maybe run her own business, right? But I think this is where, this is, this is a point in the story where she talks about pulling back, having a situation where she disengages a bit, and she refers to religion, interestingly enough. She says, whenever I have a problem, I try to pray about it, and then I'll try to think of new reasons while I'm in that space. And there's a, in, in, the, in the Netflix episode, there's a picture of her going to a Buddhist temple and offering incense. And she says, while she was praying about this, situation, the idea that occurred to her is to start implementing the changes that she wants while her parents are on vacation. That's the idea that occurs to her while she's praying. And she does this. Her parents go on vacation every year, and when they come back, she has installed an aircon and she has bought a cash uh, a registry machine and a credit card machine. And she did it bit by bit until they have a website, they have an online ordering business. She gave trainings for the staff. And they, they saw, I think what's very important about this case is that they began to see that it was working. Because in this case, they had a common goal. And their common goal is to sustain and grow the business. And they actually had a lot of shared values. And uh, it was a big challenge to recognize that those values are going to be promoted in the way 
that the youngest member of the family thinks they should go. And she had good reasons on her side, but it wasn't working for her to lay out those reasons and convince the parents. And be explicit, and be cool, ex- and rational, yes, all the things we yes. said. Because she, they were going to be very resistant. They don't want change. They're thinking to themselves, this has worked for 50 years. We haven't gone under. Everything is fine. So they cannot even imagine something beyond that. The online side of the business seems to be the part that's most puzzling to them because they don't even understand computers. But now that they're online and they have a website, the business grew so that um, the tourists know about them. And sometimes there are two-hour um, two queues just to get the just to get the food. But I think what's very crucial about this example is that it tells you that you can be steadfast about having good reasons for what you believe. But that's not going to be enough. You have to show in practice that your position leads to results. And that's usually something that people can see very concretely, no matter what value commitments you have, especially when, especially when there's a shared goal. Show, not tell. Yes, yes. But also, I think the very devious um, strategy that Grace deployed, which is to um, implement the changes while her parents were away, was also a very effective way of diffusing the highly emotionally charged situation. Yeah. So we have seen a series of disagreements in which people were able to reach consensus via a series of reframings, and those reframings involve both rational and emotional components. And I just want to point out that those reframings don't always go in the productive direction. They don't always go in, in the side where we can reach a, a good conclusion to the discussion. So that it's possible to reframe an issue so that you see more of the opposing side. And it's possible to reframe the issue so that people dig in their heels more and they get more upset and the discussion gets emotionally charged in a way that prevents people from discussing things constructively. And I think the, the, one of the cases in the Philippines involving Duterte's so-called drug war is a good example for this where initially, I think the discussion began where a group of people were insisting about the seriousness of the drug problem in the Philippines, that there was a problem that was affecting people deeply, namely that they felt very unsafe in their communities. And that was part of the platform that helped Duterte win the presidency. And there were people who were saying, this is a serious problem, something should be done about it. And initially, the discussion was framed in terms of, oh, but this is not the biggest problem in the country. This is not the most serious problem that we have. And then, of course, Duterte came into power even before he started, even before he was sworn into office. We know that the killing started. And then the discussion became about whether these killings were acceptable as a cost, as a necessary cost for addressing the drug problem that people were talking about previously. And then it became about whether it is effective or it is acceptable or whether we can pursue certain ends using certain means. And then the killings reached a peak after 
And, and there was a lot of discussion online in the local media, in international media about it. And now there is the discussion about the details of the implementation of Plan Tokhang, the police officers coming to people's houses, and then um, alleged encounters, killings that people believe was really not the case where the person killed was trying to resist arrest or even resist in any way. But also we see now a certain persistence in saying that the killings are wrong. Maybe you can discuss that in public discourse, not via, the, not via convincing dedicated supporters of Duterte and the so-called drug war, but persisting in supporting the people who are badly affected by all this violence. So that if you continue to focus on the side where we can agree, it goes some way in helping build a consensus and changing the dynamic of the conversation. I think one very interesting development that I saw in recent weeks is now we have um, a senator who is a well-known supporter of Duterte, um, Senator Bongo, who is now talking about providing financial support for the widows and orphans left behind by the drug war. He recently made a statement about this, and I think this is a very important signal about what people are currently talking about and what people are currently concerned about. The more optimistic critics of the Duterte administration say there will be a reckoning. There will be a time when we hold these people accountable for the deaths, for the killings, and we can do some course correction as a community, as a society. But I think that right at this point where Duterte is still in power and he holds control over the legislative and many other branches of government, having this change in the dynamic of the conversation would mean that you could push for a certain position that the drug war is wrongheaded, that it is harming the poor and not really solving the root of the problem, but also you can focus on something that's very concrete and has very real practical support in people's, uh, result in people's lives that the people left behind, traumatized by the violence, get the help that they need, that it's now getting traction from both sides of the conversation. And I think it takes a certain kind of commitment to a set of beliefs that you can continue along this conversation and insist and be steadfast in a way that does not compromise, but also recognizes turning points in the social dynamics and what's happening in the community so that you can frame that and work on the kind of reframing we were referring to earlier in a way that leads the discussion to a certain direction. So I think this is, this is a kind of very important part of participating in disagreement, noticing certain trends and changes like that and orienting it in a particular direction. Incidentally, um, the solution to the puzzle about the involvement of both reason and emotion that I spoke about in the beginning, I think the solution to that is connected to an old-fashioned concept called virtue, which is supposed to be 
a marriage of reason and emotion. Um, that also involves, importantly involves, social skills. So that a person who is skilled, a person who is virtuous, in this case, we can talk about intellectual virtues, the ability to be steadfast in your grip of a set of true beliefs, of the reasons that you have for those beliefs, but also a skill in being able to read and engage with people emotionally in a persuasive way, and also manage the social dynamics that go with all those things. So that's the kind of thing that helps us as participants in disputes to push the discussion in a certain way. And I think that's, that's one of the most productive things that we can take home with us as we discuss heated disagreements of this sort. But I think we can also talk about other ways of resolving disagreements. In a very related understanding of virtue from the early Confucian tradition, which is uh, distinct from the Taoist view, virtue is conceived as social charisma, the ability of a person to exert soft power, really, influence on those around her so that they behave according to the way, according yeah. to the Tao. So it is kind of similar. And I think the case of Grace Lynn, who is now running fish, uh, Smart Fish, the fish stew stall, is very similar to a, a core example or a core, um, an important passage in the Mengzi, which is a classic um, Confucian text. And it, the disagreement there is between a person who is referred to as Sage King Shun, who is an exemplar of virtue, and the problem was he wanted to marry someone, but his parents were completely against him marrying that woman. Now, of course, as a good son in the Confucian tradition, um, he should take heed of what his parents want. So what does Sage King Shun do? He marries the woman without asking for her parents per his parents' permission, which I think is as a very direct parallel to Grace Lynn um, doing the changes in their business while um, her parents are away. What's crucial about that is they're able to influence the situation because they allow the other parties involved to save face. It preserves a certain kind of harmony in their relationships because what Sage King Shun did is they didn't, he didn't ask their permission because he knew they would say no. And he, he went ahead and did what he won. And some commentators said, but that was because he seems to think marriage is that important and not to make a decision in a certain way is also wrong. But he was also trying to find a way where he could marry whom he wants, but also have some back door open that would allow for a resolution of this relationship with the parents to get sorted. And I think in this story, it was sorted just like in the way that Grace Lynn's story was sorted. We would like to thank Dr. Jacqueline Cleofas and Professor Richard Walker for being the hosts of this podcast episode entitled Heated Disagreement. The episode was edited by Francesco Amante with music from purple-planet.com. If you would like to listen to more of our podcast episodes, visit our website, arete.ateneo.edu or follow at Arete Ateneo on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This podcast was made possible with support from Garden Pavilion at the Cabanas, a premium event venue in Malolos, Bulacan.